Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 2nd, 2024. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope it is happy and healthy New Year for all the Keenon viewers and followers that are growing over the months. Uh, just before uh, the New Year, we did a show with the Anglo-American novelist Harry Kunzra, uh, who spent some months in, in Europe. And we talked about what I at least interpreted as the vitality of right-wing authoritarianism, perhaps in Europe, but also in the United States. He's not sympathetic, but he wrote about the popularity of um, Maloney and the connections between Maloney and Musk and Peter Thiel, and it was pretty interesting. In contrast, when I talked to uh, Harry, and, and this has come up a lot of times in the show before, I don't get the sense of the same kind of vitality or innovation on the left amongst progressives. Um, my two guests today have a new book out, The Ends of Resistance, uh, Making and Unmaking Democracy. Alex Olson and Alex Zamelin are both academics, one at Rutgers, one at Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, and they are joining us both from New Jersey and uh, uh, Atlanta. Uh, let's start with you. It's hard to do a three-way with two authors who are both called Alex. <laughs> I'm going to talk about Alex Olson first. Uh, Alex, is that an unfair observation, do you think? Uh, for better or worse, you're clearly on the left, as I am, but might it be fair to argue that there's a little bit more innovation, vitality, energy uh, on the right than there is on the left uh, at the beginning of 2024? Um, that there's more vitality on the right than there is on the left? Yeah. You know, I think part of what we argue in the book is that the right um, has been extremely innovative, um, so much so that they have actually captured um, resistances um, in what we call restorative resistance, right? That they have... Um, really use their economic and political power in order to restore um, that power. It's interesting that you say that. It, it, is there an element of a heavy heart there? Are you regretful of the fact that it seems to be conservatives, uh, particularly on the radical right, who were more dynamic and innovative in, in the early 2020s, and in many ways, perhaps even more critical of global capitalism? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, we certainly conclude our book um, with an idea that we call unruly world building. So um, it's by no means uh, we don't take a sort of depressive position in the book. Um, we do see that there are many hints, glimmers um, and active workings um, on the left. It's just that I think what we uncover is um, the extent to which those have been trivialized, marginalized, um, made to seem largely ineffective, out of time, out of order, um, not relevant to sort of um, more uh, officially sanctioned forms of struggle or of democratic participation, more civil forms. I can see Alex Amelin, your co-author, nodding here. Alex, you're well known. You've written 
a number of quite controversial books. Your last book was called Against Civility, The Hidden Racism in Our Obsession with Civility. Is one problem perhaps on the left, Alex, that there's too much civility, particularly when it comes to the disagreements amongst progressives between liberals and radicals? I mean, I, th I think it's a really interesting question, you know, to kind of jump off what um, Alex was saying. One of the things that I think is significant and what we try to point out in this new book is that on the one hand, the right and the kind of moderate, uh, the center has been quite effective in recuperating and reimagining the language of resistance over the past 50 years. So our book begins in the early 1970s. But I think at the same time, what we've seen over the past five years, let's say um, from 2020 on, is a real um, shift, I would argue. And I think this shift in terms of how the left is much more willing to engage in arguments that are critical of capitalism. The left is much more willing to talk about um, intersectionality, is much more willing to engage in a critique of empire and war than ever before in the last um, 50 or so years. I think for us, even though this is a beginning, it's a kind of incipient, fledgling moment, uh, I think it's worth attending to. And one of the things that we try to point out at the conclusion is that this concept of unruly world building, whether through Black Lives Matter, Occupy, Song, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, that there's something new and innovative here. And that on some level, many of the frameworks that we've used to kind of think about what left politics looks like have, I think, been uh, too much governed by um, the kind of third way um, force of the 1990s and early 2000s. And I think, you know, what we're seeing now is quite frankly, the left moving away from civility and towards something else, you know, moving away from a discourse and language of reconciliation and compromise and towards something much more assertive, much more dynamic. I think we kind of hold out hope in the transformative possibilities of this particular moment. But I think we do see this moment as a moment of potential and um, transformative possibility. Let's bring uh, Alex Olson back in. Alex, what's the difference between resistance and revolution? Um, the ends of resistance, your book, the subtitle is Making and Unmaking Democracy. As I said earlier, for better or worse, it's clearly you, you're not... Uh, you're not ambiguous. You're both uh, people of the left. Um, are you calling for revolution in a sense in this book? Hmm. I mean, I think what we're really calling for is um, liberation. Um, it, not in the sense that liberation is sort of an end state to be fully achieved, um, but in liberatory possibilities, which we see certainly being enacted in these movements that Alex just talked about. Um, you know, I think par <laughs> part of what drove us, I think, to, wrote the, to write this book um, was that we were so distressed by what we saw as sort of a more increasingly woke version um, of the neoliberal order, right? All while 
disposability, theft, um, state and corporate violence and justice kind of continue to be entrenched. Um, so, you know, revolution has so many connotations um, within political thought. It's hard to sort of capture one idea of what revolution would entail. Um, but as an adjective, certainly revolutionary thought, revolutionary um, praxis is what we are aiming toward. Uh, I'm quoting you back here, Alex. Um, woke the you're against the woke version of neoliberal order. What does exactly does that mean? Um, I think that the ways in which um, uh, political and economic elites have really um, honed in on, captured, and used to their own advantage um, for the sake of profit, um, the sort of language that has been offered: diversity, equality. Um, uh, inclusivity, a sense of belonging. Um, I, you know, I notice in my students, I'm sure Alex would as well, my students are um, enthralled by this language. Um, they would never attach that language to, though, to ideas of revolutionary possibility, right? Um, they see it as sort of uh, a more diverse, more inclusive, um, more uh, equitable, <laughs> Um, order that they see as kind of always and already the way things will continue to be. Let's, um, let's bring uh, Alex Samlin back in. Alex, uh, we're talking this morning, at least in California, where the headlines are dominated by uh, the, uh, the resignation, probably enforced, of the Harvard, uh, head of Harvard, uh, Claudine Gay, seems to have been hounded, for better or worse, hounded out of office by her critics. Um, your fellow author, uh, Alex uh, Olson, talks about her students at Emory, I think it's a private university, presumably they spent a lot of money going there, being enthralled, enamored, seduced by the debates within the university. Is the, the, the Harvard case uh, a, a good example of, of this woke version of the neoliberal order? I mean, you know, it's it's really hard to say because I think one of the really interesting uh, conversations that has kind of been over the past few months is to what extent does Harvard or any of these kind of um, Ivy League institutions kind of represent um, the position of academia or the left or et cetera, right? Because one could argue that in many ways, these institutions are at the forefront of many of the things that we've been discussing or trying to point out in the book, this idea of capture, this idea of using a language that uh, historically has been used by the dispossessed to articulate their claims, their arguments, and making this language into a language of power. So on the one hand, the real focus on Harvard, MIT, UPenn as kind of symbols of what the left looks like or what um, academia looks like, I think um, is quite fascinating and indicative of the ways in which our discourse is still kind of dominated by this desire to capture um, the ideas that are percolating in 2020. At the same time, I would say one of the reasons why we do have this pressure coming both from the left and the right is precisely because the right feels weak. On some level- Really, you Alex? Do you really believe that? The, the right feels weak? 
here's what I would say. In the 70s, when Nixon was slowly beginning to kind of lay the foundation for law and order, when Reagan was beginning to cement all of the mechanisms that Nixon put into place, by the time Clinton came into power in 1992, there was no real debate about the success of Reaganomics. There was no real debate uh, intellectually, certainly not on many college campuses like Harvard, about the efficacy of broken windows. I mean, as a matter of fact, James Q. Wilson was at Harvard for many years. And so in many ways, when the right is ascendant, it doesn't need to be so active and so um, kind of vocal in its um, arguments. It's precisely when the left awakens. It's precisely when the left starts to engage in a kind of disruptive politics that challenges the, the, the order and power of the right that you start to see real vocalization. That's when you see the Christopher Rufos of the world trying to call out uh, a Harvard president on petty uh, plagiarism allegations and so on. In other words, when a political order is strong, when a political order is viable and dynamic, it in many ways controls the discourse to such a degree where what you have over the past 50 years is resistance, meaning freedom of choice, resistance, meaning um, the policing of resistance, criminalizing resistance. That's a sign of the right strength. What we're seeing over the last five years, I think, far from a kind of new, new right, is, I would argue, um, a kind of real battle between progressive and left images of the future and more reactionary, um, exclusionary images. So to me, this is not the kind of uh, uh, indicative of the power of the right gaze resignation. It's just another example of how the right is looking to find any way it can be part of the conversation, any way it can um, engage in a kind of um, a framework that could be appealing to the majority. Another word for that maybe is, is populism, a single word. Uh, we're speaking uh, with two authors, brand new book out today, The Ends of Resistance, Making and Unmaking Democracy. The two Alexes, Alex Olson and Alex Zamelin. Um, Alex Olson, uh, your co-author Alex Zamelin talked about resistance. Um, listening to him, it sounds fanonist perhaps uh, is there a tradition that your work is is coming out of i don't suppose it's really marxist or communist uh but d do you see yourselves as part of a an american or non-american tradition in your arguments in ends of resistance where are you getting i mean obviously some of your ideas are original but, but where where is the tradition located in in the argument in this new book mm. We certainly came together from two distinct, although overlapping, um, fields of thought. You know, I come out of contemporary political theory, but um, largely sort of situated within feminist and queer political thought. Um, and Alex Zamlin is coming um, into the conversation from the perspective of um, uh, Black political thought. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we frame the book uh, through 
particular queer and feminist thinkers. Um, we discussed the ways in which this moment is reminiscent of um, what Lauren Berlant has called kind of the end of cruel optimism. Um, but we really sort of weave, I think, a, a US intellectual history um, throughout the book um, framed by queer and feminist thinkers. Uh, Alex uh, Zamelin, do you want to add something there? Where do you see uh, uh, your, your co-author positioned you more in the African-American tradition? Who, who in particular uh, is influencing your work in this part of the book? Yeah, so I think, you know, it's Alex um, is right to point out the kind of um, feminist influences, influences of queer theory. At some level, there's also uh, a kind of a persistent influence of the late Du Bois, the kind of socialist Du Bois. One of the things that Du Bois, I think, does so remarkably in um, Black Reconstruction, was published in the 1930s, is point to the ways in which there's a certain collapse polarity between black and white work through the invention of various ideologies, namely, as he puts it, the ideology of whiteness. And so Du Bois' perspective is interested in how whiteness has a wage and starts to fracture specific coalitions. But in doing this, Du Bois is also interested in excavating what the lost promises of reconstruction might be and how they've forgotten. I think in many ways, the, the intellectual orientation forms this particular book is Du Boisian in the sense that we're trying to isolate how it is that in this moment of, as you put it, in the 1960s, populism, the new left, as it was called, how we move from a moment of optimism, um, the potential to transform identity in radical and unexpected ways to a moment in 2017 where hashtag the resistance comes to mean criticizing Donald Trump, voting against Donald Trump, posting social media messages against Donald Trump. In other words, just like Du Bois was interested in understanding how it was that Reconstruction failed, what were the forces, the ideological oh. and political forces, we're interested in over the past years, what are the forces that have made resistance what it is today? And to what extent, in other words, living at a moment at a critical juncture where tremendous opportunity for kind of thinking through what a new image of resistance or a kind of in a Du Boisian sense, a new uh, section of reconstruction might look like. Uh, Alex uh, Olson, we've had a number of shows on people trying to make sense of the seems the weakness or the lack of energy within the Democratic Party and its failure to really reach the working class. We had David Leonhardt, for example, has an influential book out on the death of the American dream. Mm -hmm. And he has a powerful argument, I think, at least about the way in which in the 60s, uh, the left or progressives or the Democratic Party was split between the new left, which focused increasingly on gender, sexuality and race, and the old left, which 
lost its connection with the working class. What would you say mm. to, and I'm sure you've heard that criticism many times, mm. what would you say to mainstream uh, liberals like David, David Leonhardt, that this focus on gender, sexuality and race has increasingly made progressives less and less relevant to the American working class? Hmm. Uh, potentially that we're looking in, with that critique, we're looking in the wrong places. Um, you know, when we trace, for example, the connections between the Combahee River Collective, uh, who were vigilant in their critiques of capitalism, um, who innovated the very concept of intersectionality as part of that critique of capitalism. Say something, I, I don't know really what, what or who you're talking about. Explain who these people are. The Combahee River Collective um, was an, a, a collective, an organization um, of black feminists in the 1970s who um, came together precisely because they were excluded from the white feminist um, movement, as well as from the kind of emerging um, black activist movement. Um, and they innovated the idea of intersectionality in order to um, but, but someone like, and I don't want to put words into David yeah. Leonhardt's mouth, but people like him might argue, well, so what? And then maybe that there are always people on the left with interesting ideas, but that doesn't speak to how, or that perhaps does indeed speak to how progressives or the left or the Democratic Party have lost touch with mainstream working class sensibility. They're simply, I mean, to, to, to uh, the, the argument is that these people simply aren't interested in intersectionality it's not something that they're concerned about one way or the other can, can i can i jump is it of is course it yeah you're, okay. you're, this is uh this is on the resistance alex you can do whatever you like <laughs> okay um, you know you know i i think that one of the things that we try to kind of call into question throughout the book is you know what exactly do we mean when we talk about coalition building? What exactly do we mean when we talk about the so-called working class, right? So on some level, I think this idea of Leonhardt's narrative of the old left and the new left has a kind of racialized and gendered component, which is to say, when we talk about the quote unquote working class, often there's this assumption that it is somehow white, Midwestern, more rural, whatever. Okay. Mm. I think that one of the things that is notable about activists over the past 10, 15 years, beginning with Black Lives Matter in 2012, beginning with uh, Occupy Wall Street around the same time and moving forward, is that the conception offered by the left today of what the working class is much more in line with what the working class is, whether it, it is multiracial, uh, whether it is uh, compositionally not quite as white as we imagine in a kind of fantastical realm. But even more so than that, I think it's important to recognize that any kind of project building, whether we're talking about the new left in the 1960s, the old left in the 1960s with the masses, Eastman of war. There's always a project in which it might be the vanguard party, or in the case of American politics, it's intellectuals who are trying to, to movements with citizens who 
they may not have, have uh, agreements with. In the 1920s and 1930s, many of the working class would not have supported uh, the, the idea of women's suffrage. Many in the working class would not have supported an end to Jim Crow, but it was part of the left's inception in the 19-teens and 1920s that the project was not only to what the working class was in its multitudes and its complexities, but also to kind of engage in a certain context, which enabled uh, understand the ways in which uh, Hubert Harrison racism and uh, kind of challenged the old guard by saying not only is your conception of the word class incorrect, but also part of the goal of left activism is for intellectuals to engage in a certain kind of critique and consciousness raising so that we see the way class and are exclusive to one another. We are speaking with uh, Alex Olson and Alex Samlin, co-authors of The End of Resistance, The Ends of Resistance, Making and Unmaking Democracy. I want to remind everyone this very interesting and important conversation is brought to us in part by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Going to run a, a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with the two Alexes to talk about resistance, and particularly in 2024. So don't go away anymore. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. Um, just before the break, Alex uh, Zamelin was talking uh, about uh, the working class, the black and the white working class. Uh, Alex, um, one of the other headlines today or yesterday was about uh, Hispanic Americans now seemingly um, 30, perhaps even 40 percent of Hispanic Americans being sympathetic to Donald Trump. What would you make of that and this attempt by the radical right to attract not just the white working class, but the Hispanic and even the black working class in America? I mean, you know, this is an ongoing project of the right. Despite the fact that the right has been most successful from the beginning, kind of incorporating elements of the white working class, specifically focusing on, as Du Bois put it, the wage of whiteness, I think it would be a mistake to see this as anything new. In the 1950s, uh, a former black socialist by the name of George Schuyler, who I've written about, became trumpeted as the kind of great black conservative by arguing against the likes of Martin Luther King. Many affiliated with the John Birch movement pointed to someone like George Schuyler and said, this is the best way to defeat racism. This tradition goes back to the end of the 1800s with Booker T. Washington, who again was trumpeted 
by conservatives as the real race leader compared to W.B. Du Bois. So on some level, given the right's reactionary impulse to find ways to divide, to create hierarchy, it would make sense for them to try to build as broad a coalition as possible. Now, given the fact that hierarchy and domination is at the center of this particular project, it would make sense that they would be more pragmatic and flexible when it comes to conceptions of race. And so on some level, I'm not surprised that the right is waging an effort to incorporate uh, Latinx folks partly by playing to their sense of... Um, but, but I'm, I'm jumping in here, um, yeah. Alex. Are they lying? I mean, is there some sort of plot to capture brown or black workers in America by Trump and his associates? Or is there something genuine here? Well, I mean, again, you know, I think that in any community, in any kind of identity, there are kind of reactionary tendencies, there are more progressive tendencies. And part of Trump's calculus, the right's calculus, is not so much to get the majority, it's to uh, siphon off a certain amount of citizens, a certain amount of, um, uh, you know, uh, of the electorate that might be sympathetic to both the, the dream of neoliberal prosperity, as well as a certain feeling of rage against ongoing dispossession through the past 50 years under neoliberalism. So it makes sense for the right politically to tap in to this kind of anger and frustration. However, I think on some level, this idea that the right has found something, understood something specific within the kind of uh, Latinx electorate, I think it's, it's largely overblown because ultimately what the right is doing is playing on fears that are common to all citizens, and specifically citizens who feel like they are um, have been dispossessed, forgotten under the neoliberal era. Let's bring uh, Alex Olson back. Uh, Alex, listening to your, your co-author, uh, Alex Samalin, he seems to be suggesting, and again, maybe he'll correct me, that not that much has been changed over the last hundred years in America, especially when it comes to its racialized politics. He's Mm. Talked a lot about W.E.B. Du Bois, for example, still probably the most powerful and, and in, at least in his mind, relevant African-American writer, thinker. It, 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 in your view, has much changed over the last hundred years um, between the 1920s or even the 1890s and the, and the 2020s? Or is America still as racialized and unequal as, as it was uh, more than a hundred years ago? Hmm. You know, I think about uh, Michelle Alexander's right fam famous um, quote that what we see before us is preservation through transformation. That power relations largely remain unchanged. Um, in you, Jim Crow, at least in uh, in in Alexander's view. Yeah, right. And I think we can think also about um, you know ideas about um, inclusion. Um, and diversity. Uh, going back to our prior conversation there, we, we see different faces. Um, we see a more diverse array of faces um, potentially at the helm of power. Um, but that does very little um, to upend uh, 
what is actually happening in terms of the consolidation of resources and the theft of people's labor um, and livelihoods and lives. Um, so, so of course things have changed and um, things are always changing. Um, but power, uh, is, is still, um, at the, at the heart of so many of our problems. I, I would argue all of our problems. Um, I, I was also going to add that, you know, railing against the right is part of what, <laughs> part of what brought us to write this book that we saw, um, we saw folks on the left becoming so sort of having to occupy a defensive posture um, and running to the Democratic Party as part of that defensiveness. Um, and so we are, I think, equally uh, critical of the Democrats as we are of the Republicans in this book. Um, that is to say, we are sort of pointing out the limitations of the our electoral system more broadly. 2024, it's quite conceivable that Donald Trump will come back to power. Certainly the election is going to be fascinating in a historical sense. Uh, Alex, you're a, a double person, to use a, a popular term. You're both an academic and a poet. Yeah. In terms of resistance, um, do you feel that you are divided between the resistance of an academic and the resistance of a poet and a, a stand-up speaker, someone who perhaps uh, speaks to, to, to people in a different way from traditional academics? Hmm. Yeah, it's been sort of a it's been a, a journey of working to integrate um, my my background um, with my current position, um, learning to sort of weave these voices together. Um, you know, as a spoken word poet, I felt like my job was really to um, to invigorate people, to to enrage them, to to join them, to bring together um, people in cities uh, from different different backgrounds um, in one kind of common area to make people feel less alienated, um, to kind of service the activist energies um, of any particular space in which I was invited to, to come. Um, and, and now I need to slow down the way I think, the way I present, um, the way I deliberate on our sort of pressing political problems. Um, but it's been really exciting. And certainly as a, as a teacher and as a scholar, I work to bring um, creative and artistic voices into every every domain that I work within. Um, so I'm I'm always thinking with poets and thinking with activists and thinking with um, social movement organizers um, as well as with you know political theorists. Alex Samlin, you've used the term uh, neoliberalism several times. It's central to your argument. We've done many shows on neoliberalism. One with the historian Gary Gerstle perhaps the most authoritative historian, economic and political on neoliberalism. He, he, he ha, has an influential book, The Rise and Fall of the Nibral, Neoliberal Order. He seems to argue that neoliberalism has fallen, and particularly with somebody like Donald Trump, who isn't really a ne neoliberal. Are we still in a neoliberal period? How would you describe uh, the current quote-unquote, world order? Is it post-neoliberal? Do we need new language to describe what's happening? You know, I think that it's a really interesting question, and I think that part of what we're seeing right now, and I would say over the past five years, specifically with the advent of Black Lives Matter and the massive protests, it wasn't so much 
the success in terms of policy. It was on some level bringing certain vocabularies, a set of conversations, a set of frameworks for thinking about the world into existence, which we haven't seen under neoliberalism. So on some level, once we begin to speak of neoliberalism in the public discourse as a problem, once we begin to assess the New York Times in the Washington once Gary Gersel writes a book about it, I think there's a kind of questioning. There's a moment where neoliberalism no longer has the kind of um, intellectual moorings that it once did. It no longer has kind of status in American life as it once did. At the same time, going back to Alex's early given what we've seen in terms of economic practices and policies over the past 50 years and specifically over the past 10 years or so, how we're not living in the neoliberal era. So I'm not quite sure whether we to a kind of post-neoliberal era. I would argue that we're probably still in a neoliberal era. However, I do see a significant shift within the past five years in terms of how we talk about neoliberalism in our public discourse and to what extent the left is willing to engage it directly and to connect it to other problems, war, empire, um, and all sorts of inequalities. Mm. Neoliberalism, neoliberalism is, of course, an abstract term. Maybe it's here, maybe it's gone. What isn't so abstract is the upcoming election and the possible uh, re-election of Donald Trump. Uh, I don't know who wants to take this first. You, you, you've authored this book, The Ends of Resistance, Making and Unmaking Democracy. If Trump is legitimately elected, and you, you may quibble over those terms who knows what will happen in november of, of this year what becomes of resistance what what advice what are you arguing in the book what should happen should people go on the streets should they shut their doors and go to bed for four years <laughs> go ahead alex um you know uh, yeah you know i i, I think although we both um we, we worry about the potential of someone like Trump who has authoritarian tendencies and clearly uh, a reactionary agenda in mind coming into power. I think part of the goal of the book is to show that there are movements on the ground that are engaging in a kind of new, hopeful, alternative vocabulary to the forces of Trump, but also the forces of the past. I think one of the things that we're to articulate here is that there's a really clear line between Nixon and, and Trump, and that Trump represents the old order of the 1970s. Again, when it comes to kind of institutional politics, er, electoral politics, who knows what 2024 will bring. But the one thing we did know is from the moment Trump got elected in 2016, more citizens, more young people, and people on the left were more than ever before, certainly more emboldened than during um, the Obama era. So on some level, 
you could see the ways in which uh, another Trump presidency could embolden a kind of new wave of resistance that is building on all of the lessons that it has learned over the eight years, but now beginning to articulate a broader vision for the future. As and far I, as- uh, Let's what, bring in Alex yes. uh, Olson, and maybe Alex, you also, uh, you, your co-authors, Alex Amelin seems to be carefully dancing around on this one. What about the role of violence in resistance? Hmm. Um, I think that the ways in which resistance has been racialized and and criminalized um, tends to attach violence to radical resistance um, much more than has actually been materially evidenced. Um, if you're asking about whether we are pacifists or sort of advocating for a pacifist or nonviolent versus a violent mode of resistance. Um, I guess that's a, a different question. Um, you know, I think that activists engage with the tools that are sort of required in, in the moment. I, I have read and agreed with folks on uh, that participate in nonviolent movements and those that have participated in violent protests. Sorry, and, and I interrupt. I, I threw another question. I know you had another point to make as well in response to what Alex said. Um, that that in the case of a um, of another Trump um, presidency, I think what we would caution against would be again moving toward that mode of restorative resistance. Those kind the kind of um, the push to return to normal, right? Because part of what we're pointing out in the book is that. It is that that very normal that brought us to this moment and that will continue to bring us to Trump or worse type presidencies. Um, and so I think that um, Alex Samelin is 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 pointing us toward um, the possibility for uh, a, a Trump presidency to actually activate um, more and more folks in the kinds of um, radical resistances that we see kind of available um, for for real movement work. Alex, do you want to, uh, Alex Amelin, do you want to add something to that? I mean, is it ironic that you're talking about all this new stuff and yet you're relying on Du Bois? Well, see, um, I think that part of the goal of the book, and this is one of the things that we try to kind of do, is to show activists the ways in which they're part of a long tradition. And this is one thing that um, I think Alex and I, we've discussed it. We do a lot with our students, you know, too often specifically because kind of uh, our moment, whatever the factors may be, prioritizes a certain kind of uh, historically abstracted understanding of the present. This is new. This has never been experienced before. We are at the forefront of something unprecedented. Now, any time you disconnect the present from the past, you, I think, have an unrealistic sense of what political possibility might be and what disaster might look like. On the mm -hmm. other hand, if you connect these struggles to struggles in the 1960s, to struggles in the 1920s, to struggles in the 1850s, you start to recognize the ways in which many of these activists on the are engaged in many of the same debates, conversations. It doesn't mean that these conversations don't evolve, that they don't kind of, um, you know, fluctuate and so on. But I think part of the goal of this book 
is to really show activists that they've been here before and that in many ways a kind of obsession with uh presentism an obsession with the latest election the next round of uh, parliamentary debate distracts from the kind of long durée of history in which we can actually think through how coalitions are built how movements succeed and ultimately how they fail so as far as i think we're concerned when we look at the period between let's say 1970 until 2016 one could argue that that is the kind of um, height of the dominance of neoliberalism, politically, economically, et cetera. What we have been experiencing over the past four, uh, eight years is much more pronounced, much less uh, according to the kind of traditional scripts that we've been exposed to. It doesn't mean that we're out of this era. However, because we're in this moment of this kind of interregnum, we should back to the past to the past informs the historical dynamics in which we find ourselves but also that the past has a wealth of theory and activism that we can turn to in order to make sense of how we ought to act we've been here before um finally uh and i didn't mean to interrupt you alex olson um what about Tech, one, one place we haven't been before is all this AI in 2024 will be certainly the year in which American democracy is challenged. It's also going to be the year of AI. Can technology help or is that the problem? I think that's, you know, another example of um, some of the same. I mean, we certainly have not been in the era of advanced AI, um, but we have been living with technology for quite some time. Um, and this idea that you know, technocrats and technology itself can somehow deliver a better world, um, that the the products of, of capitalist production can somehow be put to use to solve the very problems that it creates. Um, I think that's really a myth that has been uh, generated and propagated to ensure the continued domination of the political and economic elite. Um, you know, you, you think about AI, you think concepts like management, like industry, like, um, you know, algorithm, algorithms, automation, machine learning, right? All um, con like, like artificial intelligence, um, you know, all concepts that really, I think, detach us from the humanity that will be required to really address problems um, with the love, the compassion, um, and the very human kind of intelligence that that is required. Um, you know, if AI can be put to use in in some way, you know, to help us free up time to do more activist work, um, if it can be used to help us recenter values of care and compassion over logics of ruthless exploitation, I'm all for any strategies. You know, I'm certainly not anti-technology, um, but in my mind, the kind of techno utopic dream um, that something or some something else will save us, whether it be the Democratic Party um, or a new and improved Supreme Court justice or AI itself um, is really uh, drawing us away from our connections to ourselves and to one another and possibilities for real political coalition and collaborative collaboration. So Alex Amelin, final word with you is uh... You in agreement with your co-author, switch your phones off and go out on the street? 
<laughs> yeah, in, in general, and, and I think that one of the things that Alex points out um, astutely is that on some level, um, this techno-utopianism is something that tries to, on the one hand, mainline or streamline certain practices that can be really deleterious and harmful for progressive movements, for left movements. At the same time, it offers the fantasy that somehow a certain kind of left politics can be automated, that it cannot be, that it could be unmessy, that it can require uh, a kind of purity. And I think that one of the lessons historically that we've seen time and time again is that to the extent politics is about acquiring power and building coalitions, it'll always be messy. And no algorithm can possibly solve for the unpredictability and multiplicity of human agency and human possibility, nor should it. 